tell you a secret. If you got somebody that you really like hanging out with and doing stuff with and talking about the Bible with, um, the the what you do is you start a podcast with them, and then you write a book with them, and then churches will ask you to both to come out together to do stuff. <laughs> so it's a big time strategy that worked out. You know, the the way the way that people think about God is is interesting. There was a there was a, a Episcopalian priest uh, who I was friends with, and he he grew up going to Catholic school, and uh, he told me he's like you know uh, at Catholic school you know at, at lunchtime we get in the lunch line and. They had you pick up all these things up from the lunch line, and and he's like, so you get there, and uh, he's like, you you get your food, and there's like, and at the beginning of the line, there would be this this big uh, basket of apples, and it would there's a sign that said, only take one, God is watching. <laughs> he said, so everyone take one apple. And it's like, and then you get the rest of the food, and at the end of the thing, there's a big plate of cookies. And he's like, and I, I started taking those cookies, and uh, my friend looked at me like I was crazy. I was taking all these cookies. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I just told him, take as many as you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> and that's how he tried to figure out this loophole in the system. See. God's watching the apples. We got them distracted. We'll take we'll take the cookies. And this is uh this is the sort of like how people I mean that's funny. Um but people kind of view God as somebody who's man, he is looking to get someone in trouble. Uh he is he is very interested in finding out exactly where you messed up and you don't want to do the bad thing because, you know, the last thing you want is to incur, incur his, his wrath and his disappointment. And the idea that God is a, a forgiving God that uh, that does that hasn't cornered himself and got himself in some kind of situation where like, oh, I guess I forgive people because, you know, what else am I going to do? And he does it begrudgingly. Uh, it's just not true that God is actually the kind of God who delights in forgiveness. He delights in his children coming to him and asking for his mercy and grace. He's more than happy to give it. He's he's like the we're not doing this parable, but he is like the the father in the story of the prodigal son where that character is played by God. That He's the father that runs out every time one of his children come home. And that's not just, you know. Oh yeah, when I before I was saved and I came saved and he came running out, that's just every day. God's never tired of seeing you. He never he's never bummed out that he has to see you again asking him to forgive you or to show mercy on you. He is always glad for his children to daily come to him and ask for forgiveness and grace, and he's more than happy to give it. Now this sort of extravagant thing doesn't make sense to us because we get very tired 
of forgiving and showing mercy and showing grace this feels like a, a tremendous burden and we get frustrated with people. And that's what kind of happens in this in this parable. Uh, I'm going to read it. It's uh, Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, him being Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as times as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that saved servant went out, he found one fellow servant who owing him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed when they went and reported this to their master, all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy with your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. I got gum in my mouth. Look at that. Can't start talking with gum in your mouth. I'm a professional, right? What kind of mistake? That's a rookie error. Uh, what's interesting about the, the way this parable gets started is it comes on the on Jesus um, being asked by Peter. All right, listen, I got a forgiveness problem here, and many of the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that you had to forgive someone three times. That's what you had to do. They had a, a three strikes and you're out forgiveness policy in that day. So that's what it was. It was, hey, somebody, same person, by the way, right? So same person, you got to forgive them three times. Presumably for like the same sort of thing, right? So someone does something, you forgive them. They do it again, you forgive them again. They do it again, you forgive them. They do it, then that's it. No more forgiveness. Right, you better, you better be on the straight and narrow from that time forward. So Peter rolls up and he's like, all right. Jesus, I've been listening to these words you've been saying. I've been traveling with you, looking at how you're spreading that grace and mercy and forgiveness everywhere. How many times am I going to forgive one of these, my brothers? Seven times? So he's more than doubling the standard. He's like, oh, listen, I'm a, I think I got it. I think I understand it. We're talking about seven times. It's a good Old Testament number, seven. And Jesus is like, yeah, I don't think you understand exactly what I've been getting at this whole time. I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times, which, by the way, don't do the math on that. He's just saying way more times, infinite amount of times, than you thought. Now, then he immediately goes into, here's how the kingdom of heaven would work, right? 70 times 7. The, the idea there is that he wants to tell a story that is going to illustrate that we 
Understand neither the enormity of God's forgiveness nor the danger of our unforgiveness. This is what he's going to do with Peter. He's like, you don't understand how lavish the forgiveness of God is, and you don't understand how dangerous your limitations on forgiveness is. Let me tell you a story about that. So he tells this particular parable. And the debt in the, fir- in the, in the for the first man in the story is something that no servant could ever hope to repay. This is not a reasonable thing. He's pleading to God to have patience with him. There is no amount of patience that is going to allow this man to repay this debt. It doesn't matter how long this king waits. This man is not going to be able to repay this debt. It's it's difficult to imagine how a servant could even require or acquire such an enormous debt. It's purposely absurd in the story. It's more, it's more debt than you could ever hope to actually bring upon yourself in this servant's position. A servant couldn't possibly owe this master this money. What was he doing? Did he build an entire kingdom? Like this is, it's an insane amount of debt. On purpose, it's that way. It's purposely absurd, and it makes the man's plea, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, utterly preposterous. No amount of patience on the king's part is going to get that debt paid. Now, the, the patience of God is well documented in the Bible. We see the patience of God come up all the time. That God is patient with sinners. That God is long-suffering with sinners. Peter says that we should count the patience of God as salvation. In other words, that God, we were wondering, like, could God just come back? Could Jesus just return and could we be done with this? Like, this, this is... Come, Lord, quickly, right? Yet Peter says the reason he doesn't is because he's saving more people. So we count God's patience, his delay, as the salvation of souls. God is not patient so that you can repay him. So this man wants God to be patient so he can repay him the debt. That's not why God's patient. He's very patient, but he's patient that you might come into an understanding of his Forgiveness. And so what ends up happening in this is this this uh, this master says, you're never going to repay this debt. How about I just free you from all of it? He just forgives him the whole thing. He doesn't want this servant to make promises anymore. Isn't this how we do this with God? God, just forgive me this one time. I promise I'll never do it again. I'll be better. I just be just be patient with me, God. I'm gonna get it together. This guy's not interested in any of that. He just wants you to be free. And so he just forgives this man. But here's the thing about freedom. We're not good at it. We don't know what to do with it. So this man has been set free. And what is he going to do with this newfound freedom? As sinners, we struggle with mercy amnesia. We forget quickly how much we've been forgiven. We forget how much mercy we have required. We forget how much grace we need. And we go out and misuse freedom and then 
become slaves again. This is how this works. It's it's easy to imagine the anger of the fellow servants when this guy who was forgiven an impossible debt goes out, grabs their friend by the throat. Literally says he chokes him. Like he's choking this guy out. Where's that hundred bucks? <laughs> After you've just been forgiven the national debt. Where is it? And this guy does the same thing. He's like, have patience with me. This debt is payable. Maybe a little bit of patience can get this debt paid. But he says, no, no, no. I'm going to quote verbatim the words that were quoted to me by the master. I'm going to say that of you about, I'm not going to forgive you your debt. I am going to throw you into the debtor's prison. And so it's understandable that there's this guy's friends are angry. Now, the king believes that mercy ought to produce mercy. He believes that mercy should trample over sin in a stampede of undeserved absolution. That's what, that's what he believes should happen. But that is not what happens. And, the, and God gets angry. And this is like a little bit tricky for us because God gets angry and, and throws this up this guy who's dead he forgives back into, back into debtor's prison. See, what, this angers God because God desires a world where trespass is overcome by grace. You, everybody knows like James, like famous James 2 thing where he says faith without works is dead. Everyone knows this, right? By the way, every every cult's favorite verse is faith without work is dead. I should tell you something about that verse. That is, I've taken out of context a lot. Well, here's one way in which it is. Right before that, right before the statement, do you know what it says before that statement? Does anyone know what it says before that statement? You know faith without works is dead, but what is it right before it? Right? Okay, don't worry. You're not like nobody does. It's fine. Don't feel bad. Uh he writes this. Judgment without mercy. I'm sorry. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Then he talks about faith without works is dead. Let me read that again. So right before faith without works is dead. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What is the work that James thinks shows an entirely, an entire lack of faith? What is it? It's this mercy amnesia thing. It's, wait a minute, are, like, do you not understand? How much you've been forgiven? Because it doesn't seem like you understand how much you've been forgiven because your works, that is, your judgment of another person, your unwillingness to forgive, your unwillingness to extend mercy is betraying the fact that you have not understood what you've been forgiven of at all. That's the work that James is pointing out. That faith is dead. The faith, the belief in the forgiveness that he has received from this this servant who's forgiven this massive debt. 
what he does, what it betrays him is that he goes out and mistreats and judges and has no mercy for another servant. This faith has forgotten the desired circumstances in which it was conceived. You don't remember the situation you were in when you needed that faith. This faith doesn't believe it's really forgiven. Maybe this, maybe this servant goes out there and be like, that debt, I don't know if that forgiveness is real. I better go and start saving up in case. It believes that the king might still someday demand payment. So it begins collecting from his debtors. It grabs fellow sinners by the throat and chokes out their pitiful pleas. Jesus is letting us know that the kingdom of God means to make war on debt and judgment and defeats those things with mercy and forgiveness. Now, how are we going to be protected from this sort of thing? How are you going to not have this happen to you? Everybody in here has required an impossible amount of forgiveness, grace, and mercy from God. Everybody has. Every sinner demands much of this. What is, how are you going to not be this servant? Well, you probably might, not probably, but you might be wondering, because this happens a lot, you might be saying, Listen, Tony, I get it. The grace of God, the gospel, I, I, I like that you remind us of this. We need to hear that, so I appreciate it. But there's got to be some stuff to do. Well, the reason... A pastor or a preacher worth his salt will hammer the grace of God into your ears over and over and over and over again is because it keeps you from forgetting how it is that you got here, what was required, what you still need. It, it, it reminds you over and over and over again and gives to you again the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, lest you end up going out and treating others in judgment and unforgiveness. See, the Psalms are, are full of this reminding. They read like a, like a history of God's grace, forgiveness, and salvation, and they're put to song. They talk about sin and the law of God. They recount God's faithfulness to his promise. They call back to mind who we are and what God has done to deliver us. This is one of the primary reasons we need to be preached to. We need someone to expose for us the rotten and wretched servants we are and then proclaim the mercy and grace of the good king, reminding us and reapplying the mercy that we have received in God is how God makes us merciful. At the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He is calling us to remember that we are recipients of his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. He institutes a meal to put this forgiveness in our mouths over and over again. A faith that is fed a steady diet of grace and mercy of God in the body and blood of his son then will not be dead. 
See, lack of the gospel, lack of the forgiveness of sins, lack of preaching about all that Christ has done is how your faith shrivels up and turns into unforgiveness. It's how it results in you going out and treating people unmercifully. It's how you become a person of judgment instead of a person of absolution. See, the wicked servant had a problem. He had no preacher after this. He received this mercy and grace, but there was no preacher. He had no one reminding him of who he was. He had no one continually heralding the good news that he had been forgiven. He had no means of grace, no Lord's Supper. Unbelief took over as fast as judgment flowed from his heart to his hands to his tongue. The problem was not that the king didn't tell him to go and be merciful. It wasn't a lack of instruction. The king knew that only mercy begets mercy. The problem was the wicked servant was not reminded of that mercy. The problem is that forgiven sinners are still forgetful. Now, if you spent any time on social media over the last decade, you will know that this is true. So, for a long time, the most quoted verse in the Bible, the verse that everyone knew. You could go to any non-Christian and say, do you know any verses of the Bible? And they'll say, I know this one. John 3.16, saw a dude with a sign on a football game, on TV, you know, all that stuff, right? John 3.16, everyone knows it. Do you know that that is not the most well-known verse anymore? Now, if you ask people what is the, the, they did, they did a, the, the Pew pre-research, did a poll on this. The most quoted verse in the Bible is no longer John 3.16. It is this, Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. It's the most quoted verse in the Bible. Now, non-Christians are super fond of these words. You might have, you might have discovered this. People who don't believe like these words, they're fond of throwing these words of Jesus in the face of critical believers. There tends to be a lot of effort by Christians because of this to explain how these words don't mean what they seem to mean. So all the time, right? So a Christian will take, you know, the church or, or an individual takes some stand on some moral issue. And here comes the unbeliever. I mean, I got atheist friends, like people I grew up with and stuff. And they'll be like, judge not. You know that? It's super irritating. And so what Christians will come in and say, listen, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Now, I agree that it just definitely doesn't mean that you're never allowed to judge anything. But I do think that they basically mean what they say. So, so here's how that full text goes. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be used to you. I do think that this story is that text in parable form. Jesus is trying to protect us from creating a world of ruthless Judgment, the kind of world where the best construction is ever applied to any person or circumstance or sin. This happens when we do not believe that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And when we doubt that the grace and forgiveness of God is more powerful than sin and retribution. And if we contribute to this atmosphere of judgment, we help create a world that you and I cannot survive in. This is what Jesus means when he tells you not to judge, lest you be judged. He means that if you create a world where everyone is ruthlessly judging everyone else, you, being a sinner, will find yourself on the wrong side of that judgment at some point. See, judgment is the enemy of faith because faith is delivered and sustained through grace. As we judge and demand payment from one another, we fashion a world that not, is not only skeptical of forgiveness, grace, and mercy, but downright opposed to it. Jesus is telling us a story about what happens when we forgetful sinners demand justice. Judge not lest you construct a machine out to destroy the very essence of the kingdom of God. The essential, the essential Components of the kingdom of God of faith, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. See, forgiveness is tough because forgiveness is the absorbing of a wrong. That's what it is. It's, it means that you have released somebody from something. And sometimes forgiveness feels wrong for this reason. It seems like you're letting something get away with, someone get away with something you shouldn't, right? And so the world really has uh, has trouble with it. The words, I forgive you, are tough. Because somebody's getting off the hook. But it also sounds like keys in the door of a cell turning, if you're on the receiving end of it. The, the late uh, Corey Tembu spent uh, ten months in a Nazi concentration camp. Um, she was sent there for hiding Jews. You guys might know her story. Uh, her sister died there 15 days before their release. And uh, in her book, uh, The Hiding Place, you see this like otherworldly example of forgiveness. She describes her struggle to forgive those responsible for the horrific and inhumane injustices inflicted on her and her family. And she ends up in a Bible study where she encounters one of the guards that was at the concentration camp. And the guard had become a Christian and he sought her out, knowing her story, and asked her to forgive him. Which she does. And then she writes this. She said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free, only to discover that prisoner was you. See, that's how forgiveness from one sinner to another works. When you sin against me and ask me to forgive you, I set you free, but I also free myself from the burden of unforgiveness, from the burden of having to have something paid for, the burden of having to show judgment in place of mercy. 
I fear that the, the reputation of Christians is not one of radical forgiveness. At least not as often as it should be. I feel like if you ask people, if you go out into the world and ask the unbeliever, what is Christianity about? They'll say, oh, and this is, this is documented. The main thing that they'll tell you is that Christians are stuck up, judgmental, and trying to tell everybody else how to live their lives. They want morality through legislation, or maybe it's a voting block. I don't know, they just vote a certain way. That is problematic, and we have a huge reputation problem, if that's the case. Because... What Christianity is supposed to be about, if it was supposed to be known by, by one thing, it would be, oh, Christianity. That is where people go because they believe they have their sins forgiven. Oh, the church? What the church is about is an outpost of forgiveness and grace. That's what it's about. Christians are those people who believe that Christ has died for the sins of the world and that anybody can be forgiven of anything. But instead, the reputation is, those are the the church, Christians, those are the kind of servants that go out and choke everyone else that are judgmental, that want to tell everyone else all the things that they're doing wrong. You know what's wild is, how many of you would like to be more like Jesus? Say, say, I'm just not trick. Everybody want to be, Jesus seems like a pretty good guy. Everyone want to be more like Jesus. I mean, even like atheists and stuff, they're like, I like Jesus, I just don't like Christians. Jesus seems alright. I would like to be more like Jesus. You would like to be more like Jesus. Let me tell you something. I know the exact moment for everyone in this room when you have been most like Christ. I know what it is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. For every single person in this room, I can tell you the moment that you are most like Jesus. And that is this. You have never been more like Jesus than when you have said, I forgive you. Nothing else. That's the moment you look most like God. Because that is what Jesus does. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he includes forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive our trespassers. In doing this, he ties all forgiveness together. Forgiveness is a, is a river flowing in a circle. God forgives us. And we forgive others. We forgive others. And God forgives us. This is the radical world that God wants the church to be about creating. 
a world not yet free from sin, but perhaps a church free from judgment and retribution. A world where we can finally look at what James says about faith without works as being dead. And we can have an outpost in the church where that might be true because we might have a community where judgment is stomped out by mercy. Amen. Amen.